Peter. Now, uh, for those who don't have much of a sense of humor, uh, the purpose of the picture up here, uh, I do realize that is not Peter. Um, but being that the Catholic Church believes that Peter was the first pope, I just thought I'd have a little fun. I mean, it's not very often I get to, but the Catholic Pope up there. Uh, but he sits on the Sea of Peter. He is uh, the lone apostle. We talked about that some last week. So. Um, so we'll start with Peter, whom we obviously have the most information on. Uh, we remember last week we saw that every time the 12 apostles are, are named in the Gospels, Peter is mentioned first. Remember, they're in four categories. Or th- yeah, four categories of three. They each seem to have the same. There's three categories of four, I guess. They each had the same leader. Uh, and uh, so Peter is the main leader of all 12 and, of course, of, of the inner three or four. So uh, let's start uh, with Peter. And uh, what we'll do is we'll, we'll uh, follow in general his, his role in the Bible, and then we'll conclude with uh, what happens at the close of the book of Acts. So let's start with uh, your boy Peter's name. Um, he has multiple names in the Bible. In Luke 4, he's called Simon, whom he named Peter. It's important is that Simon is his given name, his birth name. His mama gave him that name. Um, and uh, uh, Jesus comes later. And, and adds a name, calls him Peter. So sometimes in the Bible he'll be referred to as Simon. Uh, sometimes he'll be referred to as Peter. Sometimes he's referred to as Simon Peter. And then, of course, Cephas, as, as we'll see. Uh, so, so he's got all kinds of names. Simon is the most common name in the New Testament. There's like seven of them. We, we saw this last week. Uh, there's quite a bit. Uh, they're just everywhere. Uh, in fact, there's two Simons among the 12 uh, apostles. And, of course, that name comes from the patriarch, Simon. Um, the uh, brother of Joseph. Uh, and uh, much like in Arabic uh, countries, Muhammad is a very, very common name. I think it's the most common male name in Europe right now, um, at least in London, something like that. Um, whereas um, Westerners like variety with names, sort of like prom dresses. You panic when you discover some other mother named their child, like your child's name. There's panic. In Arabic countries, that's not the case. Everyone's named Muhammad. Um, so, so it's easy for that, for that name to really climb up there. So Simon was, was, was common, but Jesus adds Peter. As, uh, in John 1, he brought him to Jesus. I believe that's Andrew. I could be wrong. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John, uh, or Jonah, Jonas. Uh, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So Jesus uh, gives him a name. Uh, now, I think Jesus and Peter knew each other prior to, to this text in Matthew 4. And I think one of the evidence of this is you would not meet someone for the first time and just give them a random name. You know, a nickname, maybe. Okay. Um, if you're George W. Bush, you can get away with that. Um, but uh, just, just, oh, your name's Simon. I'm not going to call you that. I'm going to make up a name and call you that. This is probably not, not what you're going to do. But, but if you've known Peter or Simon for a while, uh, maybe you'd be, be more inclined to, to do that. So uh, Simon means heard. Uh, you can do with that whatever you want. Peter is more significant. It means rock or even stone. Um, it's, uh, some will say it's a pebble. Uh, for what I can tell, it's, it's not quite a pebble, but it certainly isn't a boulder. Um, and uh, that's going to come... Uh, be quite significant when we look at Matthew 16. And then there's the Aramaic name for Peter, we saw in, in John, is Cephas. Now, Cephas shows up uh, more than you may think in the New Testament, predominantly with Paul. Not something really thought about much. Uh, so you're, you're, I, I got like six examples. We won't read them. Um, but I follow Paul. Paul is Cephas. Why not Peter, right? Um, 
uh, you know, Paul, Paul, Cephas, he does that. Um, uh, it, in his um, con, uh, con, confession of the resurrection, he uses Cephas as opposed to Peter. Uh, Galatians, he, he confronts Cephas, he confronts Peter in Galatians chapter 2. So Paul prefers the name Cephas. I don't know why. Um, maybe it's the Jewishness of it. He uses the Aramaic name as opposed to the Greek name. Uh, I don't know. Paul doesn't hesitate to use Greek names. Uh, but with Peter, he just seems to prefer uh, the, the Aramaic name. Uh, but one of the things you need to note is, as a general rule, it's not universal, Simon, when Jesus uses the name Simon, it usually is like when your mother uses your middle name. So if my mom hollered across the house, Kyle Edward or William Craig or Amanda Dawn, uh, we, were, we were in trouble. I have no doubt you, you, were, you were the same same way. Um, so when Jesus says, Simon, <laughs> is it you again? Right? And uh, I do think MacArthur makes a good point here. He says, the nickname was significant, and the Lord had a specific reason for choosing it. By nature, Simon was brash, vacillating, and undependable. He tended to make great promises he couldn't follow through with. He was one of those people who appear to lunge wholeheartedly into something, but then bails out before finishing. He was usually the first one in, and too often he was the first one out. I actually like the way that that is, the way he describes it there. When Jesus met him, he fit James' description of a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, James 1.8. Jesus changed Simon's name, it appears, because he wanted the nickname to be a perpetual reminder to him about who he should be. And from that point on, whatever Jesus called him sent a subtle message. If he called him Simon, he was signaling him that he was acting like his old self. If he called him Rock, he was commending him for acting the way he ought to be acting. I don't know if we can be dogmatic on that, but I do think there may be an element of truth to it. Uh, now, Jesus will call him Simon for secular reasons. That is, uh, you know, Simon pay, pay the, the tax, right? Uh, you know, Simon, uh, throw out a net. Uh, but as a general rule, particularly when it comes to issues of discipleship and spirituality, theology, he, he, he would refer to him as Peter. Uh, so, so you were Simon, but now you're, you're Peter. You're, you're, you're someone different now. And I think the, the, the theological implications of that are quite, quite significant. Um, and uh, so I, I do think MacArthur may be on to something. What about, what about Peter's family? Um, and this is significant because of the Pope issue. So for one, we know that Peter had a father. We saw it in John, but also in Matthew 16. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Bar in Hebrew just means son. So a bar mitzvah means son of the covenant. So when you're 13, you, you have a bar mitzvah. Uh, Orthodox Jews still do this. And, and now that you're son of the covenant, you are considered an adult. So this is why Joseph is probably 14, 15, 16 years old when he marries Mary. Um, he's an adult. Right? Now, I think the age for an adult is like 46. I mean, we, we keep, keep pushing it back. Uh, students are hitting puberty at an earlier age and getting married at a later age. And uh, you've heard my rant. I, I, I think Christians could, be, could do better at pushing marriage earlier. Uh, but that gets me in trouble with parents. You know, every parent agrees with me on that until they have a teenager, right? And, and, and a young 20-something. Uh, yeah, but my, my child isn't ready to get married. Like, were you? I mean, let me ask, ask your spouse what you were like in the first year of marriage, right? Russell Moore, uh, he's, he used to be at Southern. Uh, 
he married his wife at a younger age and they were dirt poor. And his grandmother, someone says, what are you going to live off of, love? It's like, yeah, even if we get rich is what we're going to live off of, right? You know, that, that's kind of the way marriage works, meemaw. Um, but he, he, he has a father. We know nothing about Jonah, uh, his father, uh, other than his, his name. Uh, but this is a common way to describe someone by, by their uh, lineage. Uh, we also know he has a wife. He's married. For one, in Matthew 8, Jesus heals his mother-in-law. To, to the chagrin of Peter, no doubt. And uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul goes on this thing about, um, about marriage. He says, look, I'm not married. The apostles are, but I've chosen not to be married. Remember in 1 Corinthians, he talks about the gift of celibacy. This is something the Catholic Church gets, gets wrong. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of, of the Lord? So that's James and Jude, or Judas is his actual name, and the others, and Cephas. So clearly, Peter is married. If the mother-in-law thing wasn't evidence enough, Paul comes down and says that he was married. Um, so it's likely that of the twelve, Peter may have been the oldest. He's married, seems to have some sort of business uh, with his father and, and maybe partners with Zebedee and, and his two sons, James and John. And um, um, was, uh, seems that, and I don't think we have any reference to kids or anything. In fact, it's probably Peter's house where, was Jesus' uh, home base for ministry. He shows up there in Capernaum all the time in Peter's house. Remember that, that a house at this time didn't have 14 rooms, uh, one room per person living there. It usually had one room and maybe an upper room, and everyone pretty much slept in the living room because the whole house was a living room. Right? It was a very different, and, and so your parents would live with you, particularly as they age. You didn't have retirement homes, nursing homes, or anything like that. So Peter's mother-in-law probably lived with them. Um, insert joke there, I, I guess, if, if you want to. Um, but uh, now this is important because the Catholic Church... Uh, their practice of priestly celibacy contradicts the Bible. So the Pope is not married, nor can he be allowed to be married. Even though the Pope is supposed to be the see of Peter, he himself was married. In fact, most of the early Popes were married. The argument for priestly celibacy from the Catholic Church comes from sin. Uh, that is that historically, a lot of the priests had wives and mistresses. And so the Catholic Church answer to that was not to hold them accountable, but to say, okay, then none of y'all can get married. Ever meet people like that? If I can't play, no one, no one gets to play. You can take the ball and go home. That's what the Catholic Church did. Look, if these priests are, are just ungodly people, thus unqualified for the position they hold, um, then, then what we'll do, we'll solve the problem by adding legalism. Does that ever work? If only Jesus dealt with that. If only. You know, we can call them Pharisees or something. Um, but th that, that's where it comes from. Um, years ago, I don't know what came of this. There was talk, I think this is when Benedict was, was still uh, pretending to be Pope, um, that there was talk about going into the Anglican Church, the Church of England, and if there were any priests who wanted to, to join the Catholic Church, they could. And, and the, the hang-up was... Uh, Church of England priests can get married and they don't want to give up their wives. And so there was talk of saying, okay, you can be grandfathered in. Right? I don't know what came of that. Um, of course, the Anglican Church is just Catholicism with a different head. So now it's the queen as opposed to the pope. So 
yet another reason why I'm not Anglican. Um, that and we, we beat them in 1776. Um, so that's Peter's family. Uh, what about his calling? Here, Matthew chapter 4. This passage is significant. I think we've looked at it before. Uh, it says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him, and going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, and the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, that's usually where we stop it, but just, just, just to make a point, keep reading. Remember, there's just no subheadings when Matthew writes this. So verse 23, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. It's the first reference to miracle works. The first narrative is Matthew 8, but this is the first reference. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Now, uh, what we usually do here with the calling of Peter is we want to emphasize, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And it, it preaches really well when you're preaching on missions and evangelism, and rightly so. That's not really the point of this passage. In fact, if we began this passage in verse 17, you're going to notice what Matthew is actually doing. What is Jesus' primary message after the temptation? Baptism, temptation, verse 17, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the same message as John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptized based off of, of repentance, right? This is John the Southern Baptist, right? He's, he's from Alabama somewhere preaching this because this is what we preach today. Upon repentance comes baptism. That's John the Baptist's message that becomes Jesus's message after his experience at the wilderness. Right? And we've talked about the, the parallels with, with the Exodus story. Well, after we get the preaching of Jesus in a single sentence, then we get the story about the first four disciples these are always the first four mentioned in, in the list. Uh, so they come first early on. And what is it that Jesus says to them? Follow me, and then I'll make you fishers of men. And then we get a vignette of Jesus going around healing people in Decapolis. Decapolis means ten cities. Deca, ten, Polis city. So in this area of ten cities in Syria, he's going around preaching. What is he preaching? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Follow me. And what does the text say? is the people followed him. So you see, linguistically, all of this is connected. Repentance, following, fishing. Repentance, following, fishing. To put it another way, what you have is Jesus makes disciples who then turn around and make disciples. We get this right from the beginning. Peter's calling is, is rooted in that standard. So it's not like Jesus shows up and says, you know what, these four guys are going to be the key guys for, for me reaching the world. Rather, he says, starting with these four guys, this is the pattern I'm going to establish. Repent, follow, fish. That's it. Disciples make disciples. We become a disciple in order to, to, to make uh, disciples. So um, according to Josephus, there's probably about 240-ish boats in the Sea of Galilee at this time. Um, and uh, Peter and them... Um, would have been fishing on the shore. We can tell that by, by the net they are using. And uh, there, uh, they have heard the preaching of Jesus to repent. And now he is calling them to, to respond, to follow him. Now, that theme of following is a major theme in the Gospels, or really in the Bible. Think about it. Abraham is called to leave Ur 
and go to Haran, eventually the, the Canaan. So, so follow God, you know, be a sojourner, follow wherever God leads them. Lot is told to uh, leave Sodom and Gomorrah. Amos is told to uh, leave a life of farming. Matthew is called to leave a life of being a tax collector. So in this scene, Peter is called to leave behind his, his, his career and follow Jesus instead. It's a radical call. Peter, James, John, and Andrew all do this. And they literally leave their dad alone in the boat. All right, we, 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 we should feel more sympathy for Zebedee, I'm guessing. Um, but I do think that they probably knew who, who Jesus was. We meet Zebedee's wife, and uh, I think it's Luke. She's the one that says, hey, Jesus, can my boys uh, be one on your right, one on your left, right? And so, so we do meet uh, Mrs. Zebedee. Um, so, but in, let's just take Matthew's gospel since we're looking at it. Over and over again, Jesus uses the language of following him to describe disciples who make disciples. So in um, Matthew 8, uh, a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Right? Remember what Jesus says? Foxes have holes, uh, birds have nests, son of man ain't got a place. He ain't got no pillow. Right? The, the, the Trump pillow guy ain't stopped by my house and sold me no pillows. I'm without a pillow. Right? I need a pillow. Right? What is Jesus saying here? Like, following me is not joining a team. Following me is a radical call to obedience, even to the point of poverty. But then what you get in Matthew 8, again, remember that don't just read the Bible as brief stories. Right? They, they flow together. Jesus then gets into a boat and he, he calms the storm. But what does it say there? Um, um, Follow me, leave the dead to bury the dead. He tells this to another guy. And then when he got into the boat, what did the disciples do? They followed him. It's the same word. He tells two people to follow him. And then what did we read? The disciples were following him. Of course they did. Because in Matthew 4, that was the call. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Here are these fishermen getting a boat. And what are they doing? Following Jesus. Right? So, so you can take just Matthew's gospel, do it with the others, and you can, you can get this theme. Matthew 9, Jesus saw a man called Matthew sit in the tax booth. And what does he say? Follow me. And he did the same thing Peter and the boys did. Matthew 10, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Uh, which I think we should apply that to Gethsemane. The call of the disciples would be to follow Jesus to the cross. So when they abandon Jesus in Gethsemane, that is direct disobedience to, to, to the call of Christ. Follow me even to the point of death. Uh, Matthew 19, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven follow me. This, of course, is the rich young ruler. And the, the call he gives him is the same. Later on in that same chapter, Peter said, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? <laughs> Peter, um, what's next? Jesus said, truly, I said to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glory throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Right, that's a pretty good deal. If you can handle, you know, the torture that awaits them. Um, uh, before death. Uh, but you see, the whole point is following Jesus. Uh, in Matthew 20, Jesus in pity touched their eyes. This is the, the two blind men, um, one being uh, Barnab uh, Brat Barnabas. I'll always do that. Um, this is right, this is the last scene before the triumphal entry, which starts in chapter 21. Uh, they recovered their sight, and what did they do? They followed Jesus. Now, that's an important scene, isn't it? Because they can't follow Jesus because they can't see Jesus. They hear Jesus, and they respond the way the blind always respond. And that is that they receive the healing of Jesus, and upon seeing him, they follow him. That's a picture of salvation. 
which takes us back to Matthew 4. Repent, follow fish. What are the two blind men doing? They're repenting as, as demonstrated in the scene and then following Jesus. All right? um, so that, that is Peter's calling. We then get Peter's commissioning uh, in Matthew 16. Turn to Matthew 16 with me. I trust you're familiar with this passage. Gives an opportunity to take on the Catholics again. Matthew 16, uh, we'll do verse 13 through to 20, but again, you, you can't really understand everything in this scene without keep reading. But for our sake, verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, uh, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of John, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And not till you are Peter, and on this rock. Does it make sense now? I say to you, you are Petros on this Petra. Uh, so on this little rock, um, Peter, I will build the rock. Now, um, so Peter is the little rock. I will build my church. And the gates of hell, or Hades, Hades, shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one he was the Christ. And then, verse 21, he begins to, this is the first of three predictions of his death and resurrection. So I think that's a very important detail. Jesus must go to Jerusalem and suffer the hands of sinners and be raised the third day, which means you can't understand what happens at Caesarea Philippi without understanding the prediction about the cross. They're put there for a reason. So, when, so this affects our interpretation of this important scene. It's the turning point of the Gospel of Matthew and Mark. They have the same turning point. Before this scene, everything's about the kingdom. After this scene, everything's about the cross. This is a turning point. It's like Rocky, right? You know, there's that turning point, you know. And, and uh, uh, now everything's about the cross, which means having a good foundation with the kingdom is, then Jesus introduces the church, which its foundation is the cross. You can't understand the kingdom or the church without the cross. That's what Matthew is showing us here. Uh, everything has to be, be, be about, about the cross. Well, a couple of things to note here. First of all, I don't know if I have this up here. No, Peter uh, stands as a leader. Uh, that's verses 13 to 16. Disciples are all giving their, their own answers, right? And, and they're all wrong. It's a multiple choice uh, quiz, and they, they, they pick D, and they should have picked C. Um, but Peter gives the right answer. So when Jesus praising Peter, praises him for both getting the answer right and leading the disciples to the right answer. Uh, Peter often speaks up for the twelve. Uh, John 6 is another example of this. Um, when Jesus says, do you too want to abandon me? Do you want to leave? And Peter, represent the twelve, says, where else are we going to go? You're the one with the words of life. Right? He represents the twelve as its leader. But in verse 16 to 20, we have the foundation of, of the church. And this is the first time the church is used. Um, and... The emphasis of the text, um, I believe, as a Protestant, is not on the who, but on the what. It's not who said this, but what is it that he said. Or, to put it another way, the big debate between Protestants and Catholics is over the word this. On this rock, I will build my church. Is the this towards Peter 
on Peter, I'll build my church? Or is it on Peter's confession? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Which one is it? Well, Catholics say it's, it's all on Peter. But I got to say, if you're going to pick someone in history to build the foundation of your church, Peter would not be the one I'd pick. Maybe Paul, although they, they have a high view of Paul, particularly his role in Rome. Um, but, but certainly not, not Peter. I do John, right? If you're going to pick among the 12, I'd, I'd probably pick John or Andrew or Bartholomew because we don't know much about them and you could just make things up. That's pretty much what the Catholic Church has done anyways. Um, but Protestants say the important thing here about the church isn't the who. Peter's going to die. What matters is what Peter said. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so what you get in this scene then is who is Jesus, the Christ, Son of the living God? What did Jesus come to do? He must go to Jerusalem and die at the hands of uh, the religious elites. That is basic Christian theology, centered on the person, the who, and the work, the what, of Jesus. It's right here. And in that context is the foundation of the church. And Peter plays a role in it. So the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. It will prevail against Peter because he died. I mean, that's the gates of hell, or gates of Hades here, would, would, would be the land of, of the dead, as opposed to maybe hell, which is more, more specific. At the same time, Peter does play an important role in this. It's not an accident that in Acts chapter 2, it is Peter who stands up to speak, not Thaddeus. It has to be Peter. He's the leader. He's the spokesperson. Uh, and it is he who first confessed Christ like this. So I, think, so I do think there is a connection, but the emphasis is on what it is that, that he says. This is an important scene in the life of Peter. Uh, as is the transfiguration, we, we won't be able to look at it. Peter in his epistle refers back to the transfiguration as a turning point for him. We saw Jesus in all of his glory. We were at the top of that mountain. So in that sense, Peter is like Aaron with Moses at the top of the mountain. In fact, that scene of the transfiguration is purposefully like Moses and Aaron at the top of the mountain. So three people go to the top of, of Mount Sinai, three people at the top of Mount Transfiguration. At Sinai, they see God in all of his glory. At Transfiguration, they see Jesus in all of his glory. And guess who shows up with Peter and the boys? Moses, right? Moses and Elijah, who represents the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. And by the way, guess who else went to, to the Mount Sinai and encountered God? Elijah, right? You remember that God spoke to him Yes, yeah, my son's name Elijah. Um, spoke to him through, through the whisper. Right? So it's not an accident that Moses and Elijah show up there. It was a turning point uh, from him. I'll tell you, let's look at two more passages. Uh, Galatians chapter 2. We'll look at uh, Peter's correction. Galatians 2. This was the showdown between Paul and um, Peter. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. My first sermon series here was through Galatians. So if you are that bored and you want to know more about this passage, we did an entire week on this passage. Um, that was a long time ago. It's crazy how fast time flies, except for 2020. Verse 11 of Galatians 2. Um, when Cephas, there's, there's that name, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that, that their conduct was not in step with the truth, 
uh, of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What Paul is doing here is he is pointing out the hypocrisy of Peter. The issue here is not so much about food as it is fellowship. This is a key distinction. Um, it's likely that the meal being prepared here was what we might call a potluck. Okay? In that potlucks are what Southern Baptists do whenever we get together. At this time, you have what are called agape feasts, love feasts. And by the way, it's because agape feasts uh, center around the Lord's Supper, the uh, Romans accused Christians of incest. They called each other brothers and sisters, including husbands and wives. They accused them of atheism because they wouldn't worship the gods. They accused them of, um, of cannibalism and uh, wild parties, safest way to put it. Because you have a thing called love feast where you drink blood and eat flesh and you call each other brother and sister. right? And you don't worship the gods. So all those accusations, so the early apologists, that was some of the things that they had to deal with. Um, you do that whatever you want, that's free. Um, but this is probably the agape feast. So they would have a meal, and then at the end of the meal would, would be sharing the Lord's Supper. I actually like that model. It's something I've been wanting us to do. You can't do it with COVID. But what if we had the Lord's Supper as, as part of worship, and then we turned it into fellowship, which is sort of the whole point of a supper. It's not much of a supper if you take a sip and go home, right? It's a, it's a Lord's sip, I guess. Um, but uh, so he's withdrawing from the Gentiles um, because when the Jews show up, he's given the, the, the um, he's implying that the Jews are superior to the Gentiles. And Paul won't have anything to do with this. Um, so he confesses the gospel. He's not living by the gospel. So he's causing unnecessary division within the church. Um, and so Paul confronts him to his face. Now, what's fun about this is, even though Peter is now, you know, saved and sanctified and a leader in the church, you, you uh, old habits are still popping up. There, you know, so, so the Peter of the Gospels is occasionally showing up in, in the, uh, after the Gospels, after the, the resurrection. And we get this brief vignette here. Um, and so Paul has to correct him, uh, which shows Paul's courage, I think, in, in doing that. If, um, there are a lot of people that we respect we are not willing to confront. And Paul couldn't care less. The gospel was, was at stake. So look at one other passage. Go back to John 21, and let's talk about uh, Peter's legacy. Um, this is, it was not until I was at Boyce, I did a paper on... Uh, the ending of John. I'd read John a million times, you know, in high school and college, but I'd never noticed this. And I just find it fascinating um, where Jesus predicts the death of Peter. I don't know why I just never noticed it. And then it has a weird ending anyways. Um, so John 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? 
He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So, so you see that the end of Peter's discipleship under Jesus ends the way it began. Follow me. Uh, and it's not an accident. Now, there's some exegetical issues here. One is, uh, in Greek, Jesus uses, there's two words for love here. Jesus says, Peter, do you phileo me? Or do you agape me? And Peter says, you know, I phileo you. Do you agape me? Jesus, you know, I phileo you. And some read into that. Uh, but if you do that, you also have to do, you can see it in English. Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then he says, tend my lambs. He's using different words that mean the same thing. Sheep and lamb, essentially the same thing, right? Um, so is there a deeper meaning with that word change? I've gone back and forth on that. I, I don't know. Uh, but you, you see that for John, who is the beloved disciple, the beloved apostle, to love Jesus means more than mere affection. It, it will eventually lead to Peter's death. And so he describes it in, in a quite a striking way. Um, when you were young, you dressed yourself and walked where you wanted. But when you are old, uh, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. Some see this as stretching out the hands as a reference to a cross. Uh, it may be a bit of a stretch, no pun intended, but uh, that, that, is, that is possible. But if, if you want to see why this is a weird ending... Verse 20 says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think that's John the Apostle. Following them, th there you go. So remember, Peter is to love Jesus and to follow Jesus and thus lead the others. And we see it immediately. John is following Jesus and Peter. It's a subtle hint, but it's there. He leaned back against him during the supper, and that's it. So, so he's just identifying him. So verse 21, when Peter saw him, there's a rivalry between Peter and John and John's cousin. It's, it's a fun little study for you. Um, they, they race to the resurrection to see who's the fastest. It's, they're teenagers. <laughs> um, Peter said about John, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that the disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? So here the story goes that John is an elderly man writing in the 90s, probably, um, probably 70, 80 years old, and um, he's still alive. All the other disciples are dead, martyred. He's still alive. And so the, the rumor went out, well, Jesus said... He's not going to die until Jesus comes back. And he's getting up in age. Jesus must be coming back quick, right? And John writes this, and one of the things he puts in there is, that's not what Jesus said. Stop the rumor. It's fake news, right? Stop watching CNN, y'all, right? He's saying, look, he said, if it is my will that he never die, what is that to you? Your job is simply to follow me. Stop being distracted by what I'm doing with other people. You follow me. But then notice the actual ending, verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know his testimony is true. Notice that John is based off of eyewitness testimony. Verse 25, now there are many other things that Jesus did. 
were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that, would, that could be written. Which is, isn't that a terrible ending? Don't you want to know these other stories about Jesus? John is terrible at doing that. There's a lot of other things I like to tell you, but I'd rather tell you to your face. Yeah, but we're not going to see your face, right? How about you write them down for us, Hoss? You know, put, put it as, as an appendix if you have to. But there's something else weird about this ending. I don't know if you caught it. In verse 24, notice, we know his testimony is true. In verse 25, I suppose the world couldn't hold all the books about Jesus. What a subtle change of pronoun. Who's the we? Did John write this or did we write this? Whoever the we is. So, so if you want another um, uh, bullet in your apologetic weapon, not to sound like Benny Hinn there, um, this is a, a good one. So John says, I'm an eyewitness to these things, and he demonstrates he's an eyewitness. Um, but then it says, we, probably the elders of Ephesus, where this is written from, we affirm what is written in this is true. So it isn't just the word of a single man. It is backed up by people who would know if it is true. By the way, you can do this with the other three Gospels. Mark is essentially Peter's Gospel. From what we can tell from, from early church history, I did a whole sermon on this and bored everybody, um, that Mark took Peter's preaching and put it in narrative form. So when Peter would share stories of Jesus, Mark is the one putting that together. Matthew is an eyewitness, right? and he has a motive to writing to, to Jews. Luke is writing on the authority of Paul. So they're all connected to eyewitness accounts and to other people that, that, that would verify what is being written. Not to mention Matthew and Luke are probably borrowing from Mark. About 95% of Mark is found in either Matthew or Luke. Uh, there's not very much into that that is unique to Mark. Uh, and what is unique are usually very strange, like the man that ran away, ran away naked in the, in the garden. It's only found in Mark. Uh, so I find this, this fascinating. Well, um, so what, 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 what became of uh, Peter? Um, so Peter just isn't really mentioned much in Acts after a certain point. It becomes Paul's story rather than Peter's story, even though he's the main character in the first half. Then it becomes Paul. And so outside of Galatians 2 we looked at and his two epistles, Peter, Peter doesn't really show up much. Um, so what, what do we do with Peter? You know, so so we, we can have some biblical evidence, but most of it's going to come from outside of, of the Bible. We do know his ministry was outside of Jerusalem. He ministered there, obviously, on the day of Pentecost. He was in Antioch. That's where he was confronted by Paul. We know he was in Rome and in other places. Uh, one theory is, if you take... Oh, I didn't put the verse up there. Okay. In 1 Peter 5.13, at the end of his letter, he writes... She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So does Mark, John Mark, the gospel writer, uh, my son. Now, whoever she is in Babylon, we don't know. But how do we interpret Babylon? Babylon's not mentioned a lot in the New Testament outside of the book of Revelation. It is mentioned in 1 Peter 5. And I think Peter wrote 1 Peter. I also think he wrote 2 Peter 2. Um, so... There's two ways to interpret the word Babylon. One is to do what John the Apostle did in Revelation. Babylon is a reference, a generic reference to Rome. So in Revelation, Babylon has seven hills. 
Guess what other city in the ancient world had seven hills? It was Rome, right? Um, and, and there may be some legitimate truth that the 666 is, is a, a fun way of saying Nero. You can take the numbers, apply, you know, so as you can get Caesar, Nero, whatever, whatever it is. Um, or it can be the actual city of Babylon that was still around and still had a large Jewish population. So one theory about Peter is, is that he is writing this letter from the city of Babylon where he has a ministry there. That's a possible interpretation of that. I don't know if it's right or wrong. Or he is in Rome, which we know he's going to end up in Rome. Second Peter seems to reference his likely upcoming death. I didn't, I didn't take the time. I think it's chapter 1 of Second Peter. Um, you can read it on, on your own time. Second Peter's short letter anyways. Um, so beyond that, everything else is basically speculation uh, other than his death, which we'll look at. Um, some say he made it all the way up to the British Isles. Um, some say he, he went all over the place. Um, and you can find relics. You can supposedly find his, his, uh, his bones in Rome. and You can find uh, churches he supposedly planted in various places like British Isles and ancient Babylon, all that sort of stuff. But a lot of that is based off of tradition, and I don't know how reliable it is. One common tradition which has some good evidence to it regards his death. And this is a, a famous painting depicting his death. Um, uh, I looked up who did this. This is a famous painting. And I asked Amanda if he were, if he were a famous painter, and she recognized him, so I guess the answer is yes. Um, and he's done other paintings I, I recognize. Uh, he's, he's a sort of painter that emphasizes light, like Rembrandt and some others. I'm married to artists, so forgive me. I now have to like this stuff. Um, like she has to like dead people now, right? Because <laughs> that's all I read. Um, but according to early church tradition, some of it is quite early. Uh, Peter died in Rome with or closely associated to Paul under Nero. Um, and Peter wanted to be crucified. He's a non-citizen, crucified upside down. The genesis of the story is Nero, uh, after about a quarter of the city of Rome burned, um, uh, basically Rome is California, um, apparently the uh, windmills couldn't stop the... Uh... No, really what happened was Nero was having a gender reveal party, and uh, things got out of hand, and then CNN got on TV and said, can you believe it? The child didn't even get to choose its own gender. And so the pink, the pink smoke, everything should be offensive to everybody, and Nero should be impeached. This is all true. I saw it on uh, MSNBC. It has to be true. But the fourth of the city actually burns, and it, it, it affected quite a bit of people. People wanted answers, and they went all uh, Katrina against Bush, where, where uh, they blamed Nero. So Bush was responsible for the levees breaking in, in, in uh, New Orleans, apparently. And so he got blamed. Well, like any good politician, he has to scapegoat, right? So, so I don't want to be blamed. You've got to blame someone. And what is the one group of people in, in Rome that no one liked? The Christians. And so he persecuted the Christians. And we have secular resources about Christians being persecuted. Tacitus being one, uh, one of the more significant ones, where Tacitus feels sorry for the suffering of the Christians. He didn't like the Christians, he just felt sorry for the suffering. Nero, for some of them, would turn Christians into human candles, cover them in wax, light them on fire to light his gardens at night so that uh, uh, tourists could get, get, get walk through them at night. Terrible, terrible stuff. Within that persecution, the first major persecution from Rome, you have persecutions in Rome. This is from the state itself. Uh, Peter and Paul are executed. 
Paul hints at it in 2 Timothy, uh, where, where he talks about, uh, uh, you know, come see me before it's too late. 2 Timothy is kind of a sad letter uh, when you consider the, the backdrop. Uh, Peter hints at his upcoming death. Um, but then we have a document from the first century by one of the early Christians, you'd, you'd be, say a second generation Christian. His name is Clement. And he wrote a book to the Corinthians, but we call it First Clement. Um, you boys ought, ought to read it. It's, it's a really important document just to understand early per- Christian practices. He mentions baptism, Lord's Supper, all that sort of stuff. Like the Didache. Next to Didache, most important non-biblical book of Christianity. Um, in there, Clement mentions how Paul and Peter both suffered well and became martyrs. Okay? But we can look at other ones. I'll read to you Eusebius. Um, Eusebius is an early uh, 4th century church historian. A lot that we know about the early church comes from him. He cites sources. So I had to do some skipping because he cites a lot of things. When the government of Nero was now firmly established, he began to plunge into unholy pursuits and armed himself even against the religion of God of the universe. But with all these things, this particular uh, in the catalog of his crimes was still wanting, that he was the first of the emperors who showed himself an enemy of the divine religion. Thus publicly announcing himself as the first among God's chief enemies, he was led on to the slaughter of the apostles. It is therefore recorded that Paul was beheaded in Rome itself and that Peter likewise was crucified under Nero. This account of Peter and Paul is substantiated by the fact that their names are preserved in the cemeteries of that place even to the present day. Now, I don't think they're still around. I mean, the Catholic Church found them. Okay. You, you heard me last week joke, Martin Luther's joke, 26 of the 12 apostles are buried in Germany. Right? So the Catholic Church found it. You know, they also have the head of John the Baptist and the milk from, from Mary's breast. Right? I mean, they, they've got thorns from the cross itself. So you just do with that whatever you want. Um, it is confirmed likewise by Caius, a member of the church, the church in Rome, who arose under Zephyrinus, it's a good name for a gerbil, bishop of Rome. Bishop of Rome, early on, the idea of the papacy, the papacy isn't early, but the rise of the power and influence of the pastor, the bishop in Rome, does rise early. Okay. So Peter was viewed as the first bishop of Rome. He wouldn't have been. Bishop just means pastor, elder. Um, it started in Jerusalem with James, the primary influence of the early church, because he was the bishop, the main pastor of, of Jerusalem. It eventually transitioned to Rome. So when you speak of the bishop of Rome, that brings with it some authority. We may say today the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, that person doesn't have any more authority than I do. Right, uh, the the president of the SBC cannot come in here and say, uh, "You guys need to fire your music leader." Now we may want to, right? But but he has no authority here, <laughs> right? Um, but uh, uh, but we would say this person of position carries some influence. So if he came in here and said something like that, uh, you should change the color of your carpet to cardinal red. We would at least listen to him, right? Right? So, so you do have the rise of influence of the Bishop of Rome. He goes on, and that they both suffered martyrdom at the same time is stated by Dionysius, Bishop of Corinth, in his epistle to the Romans. In the following words, quote, you have thus by such an admonition bound together the planting of Peter and of Paul at Rome and Corinth, 
For both of them planted and likewise taught us in our Corinth. Now, we know that in the Bible, don't we? Remember, Paul's complaint is some of you guys like Apollos because he was a good preacher. Some of you guys like, like me, Paul, because you have low, low standards. Some of you like Cephas, Peter, when he taught here. But some of you guys are, think you're more spiritual than everyone. You say, I'm, I like Jesus, right? You're, those are people who need to be blinked in the eyes. So we know that Peter at one time taught in Corinth. So the, the bishop of the Corinthian church at this time is saying, hey, we share something in common. Both Peter and Paul ministered in our respective city and churches. That's his point. And they taught together in like manner in Italy and suffered martyrdom at the same time. So the tradition is that because he is a non-citizen, uh, he is to be executed by uh, crucifixion, uh, which you would not do for the citizen, why Paul was likely beheaded instead of crucified. But the story is then added, he was crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to die as Christ did. Now, if that's the case, that is unique among the martyrs. We have several people martyred by crucifixion, Andrew likely being one of them. The cross of St. Andrew was an X, but he wasn't upside down. And there were others who were crucified uh, who just accepted traditional martyrdom. So this is, this is where paintings like this come from. They're hanging them up, upside down. Um, and the early church considered it, um, considered it honorable to die the way Christ died. So this would have been a terrible way to go, but an honorable way to go. Okay. Anything else about Peter? Still remember my dad coming up to me and I was just starting boys. We were at uh, Cedarmore. You tell uh, Dylan this, who used to work at Crossings. Um, he asked me, he just discovered this story about Peter. And he says, Kyle, where is the uh, martyrdom of Peter in the Bible? And I looked it up in the back of the Bible, hoping I can find something. That's just clueless, right? And then our pastor says, well, it's not in the Bible, right? And that was a real lesson to me, uh, that a lot of what we know about the apostles are ba is based off tradition. So some of it reliable, some of it isn't. Uh, there, are, there is a book called The Acts of Peter that mentions the martyrdom of, of, Jesus, of Peter, but it's not written by Peter. Um, and it's doubtful how much of it is, is reliable. So anything else? All right. So next week, I think we'll look at John, I think. We'll see. And then after a while, we'll look at two or three at once because we just don't have a lot of information on some of them. All right. Since we can't hold hands, uh, we'll just stand up and pray and be dismissed. Um,